Hello, this is William Tharp, and welcome to Home Quizzes, questions about real estate in Episode 9. Now, today's question is, can I change my existing zoning and land use? So this entire episode is going to go over um, an actual existence of how that goes about happening. We're going to use it as picking up from Episode 8 and and continue to talk about what happened to the uh, Henry Flagler Railroad. And um, we'll then use it later in the the podcast to, to go over how that was later rezoned. So... Let's pick up where they were. When we last talked about the uh, Florida East Coast Railroad, they were having a, a, a great time. They just finished the Overseas uh, Railroad. And then in uh, 1913, um, Henry Flagler uh, died. Um, that changed the course uh, in, of, of the company quite a bit, but they were able to carry on. The, uh, the period of time that happened between uh, 1912 and 1929 was great years of prosperity. Uh, this was the Roaring Twenties. People were coming down to Florida in droves to in, enjoy the prosperity the United States had never seen before in its life. So the hotels that Flagler had created were, were full. The, uh, the the train was running product up and down its tracks, making money for that. And it, it was just, it was a glorious time for the railroad. That was, of uh, course, until up until 1929 when the, the stock market crashed dramatically and place the uh, the whole country into what is now known as the Great Depression. Now, the railroad was able to struggle on for about two years, but the lack of uh, income from those who just weren't using the railroad either for passenger or freight traffic, and, and the lack of those you know, buying uh, real estate and in a lot of cases uh, defaulting on it, just really pushed the, uh, the company to a point of having to go into bankruptcy in 1931. If that wasn't bad enough, in 1935, one of the greatest storms that ever hit the United States hit the Florida Keys. It was the, the Great Labor Day Hurricane of 1935. Now, this storm destroyed most of what we know today as Almorada. And uh, the train was actually running on the track just a little bit uh, from there in Bacumba Key. And while on the track, 13 of the rail cars were just swept off it by the hurricane, by the winds and the rain and the, and the, the waves that were coming up onto the tracks. And uh, ironically, the, the only thing standing was the, uh, the, uh, the locomotive itself. And, the, you know, miraculously, no one died from, you know, all of the, uh, the incident. Uh, there were some injuries, but, but still in bankruptcy, the, uh, the railroad company was in a point where it could not replace the destroyed track. There was a couple of miles of track in, in several aces where um, the hurricane had actually just uh, taken the railroad out and uh, they didn't have the money to do it. So it was decided that they would sail the um, overseas track to the state of Florida uh, who would go on and take repairs and create what, what is now known as the Overseas Highway. Uh, they went ahead and sold that to the state of Florida, and then um, in the March 29th of 1938, the state of Florida closed the last gap uh, that was needed uh, and repaired and uh, opened again the mainland to Key West via, via car. Now, the company stayed in receivership for about 30 years, and uh, then in 1961, the uh, Albert DuPont Testimonial Trust bought up a controlling interest in the railroad and placed it under its uh, St. Joe Peter Paper Company. Now, the uh, railroad was managed by uh, Edward Ball. Now, the widow of uh, Alfred was Jesse Ball DuPont, which was uh, Edward's sister. So the two of them ran the company for going on, you know, the next 10, 10 to 20 years. 
And one of the first things that uh, Edward Ball decided to do was look at the books and notice that the company hadn't been profitable in but one of the last 12 years and had lost $29 million. Now, this was during the period of time from like the 50s to 1962. So after some discovery and some audits, it was determined that the main issue is that they just the way that the company ran and the amount of uh, the costs associated to its payroll was too much. So he immediately reduced the uh, staff from 3,300 down to uh, 2,200. They also got rid of some old legacy um, extra um, requirements so that, you know, every hundred miles they had to change a crew and items like that and invoked what is now known as the eight hour policy with overtime if needed, where, you know, instead of needing three crews to make one trip up to um, from Miami to Jacksonville, they were able to do it with one in most cases. So it greatly brought the costs down of the railroad in an attempt to make it more profitable. Now, this immediately angered the, the unions. So, you know, they immediately looked for concessions to be created and new contracts. Ball said no, and so the union struck in uh, January of uh, 1963. So in order to, to counter this, what Ball decided to do in February was to decide to run the trains uh, without union members and just to run them with supervisors as, you know, the actual conductors or actually the engineers. And enabling the, him to do this was the fact that the company was facing bankruptcy. So they continued to do that in, in, as well as the changes that we'd already discussed. And uh, the, the strikes went on. The uh, real issue was there was a lot of violence related to the strikes uh, where striking employees would actually try to blow up the track or the engine or just, you know, create a situation of, of um, fear that would prevent people from using the railroad. It had gotten so bad that uh, they actually stopped uh, passenger traffic from 1963 to 1965. And Ball was fine with it. Passenger traffic was not profitable to the train, and it was only a, um, a court order in 1965 that they resumed it for a period of 33 more years before they just halted all passenger traffic together. So Ball had realized that for the, uh, the, the Florida East uh, Coast Railroad, they were all about freight. They were no longer about the passenger days. Um, you know, the, the, the times that Flagler had created where the railroad was meant to fill the hotels was gone. The, the railroad needed to use its lucrative contracts with the, the, uh, the city of Miami and, the, and the, the port of Miami and the Fort Lauderdale's port and uh, the, the track that it owned, that 351 miles between Miami and Jacksonville to, to carry freight. And, and that was what was profitable and that's what they decided and determined to do. Now in 1984, uh, they reorganized and created a holding company, which is now known as the Florida East Coast Industries, and it held the railroad and then the Flagler Development Company. And, you know, over the years, they'd made quite a few developments. They divested from land and, and bought into office space and commercial developments and used their money a little bit more fuller. So it had been quite a bit of change. And one of the major changes that uh, uh, the railroad became was more of uh, adopting and or embracing intermodal transportation. Now, intermodal transportation is uh, where you start on a ship, go from a ship to a rail, and then rail to a truck. And the idea behind it is to streamline the costs so that if it's more effective to, you know, bring containerization um, or bring containers off ships and then freight them up to Jacksonville from Miami via a rail and then have an intermodal hub, as they call them, that would then later take these uh, uh, 
containers off of the uh, the train and put them onto trucks and then send them to the businesses from there. That was the way to go, and it became quite successful. And in fact, uh, one of the, the larger uh, rail areas that the uh, railroad had in uh, Hylia uh, became one of the major terminals for this uh, campaign and were able to handle about a thousand containers uh, from rail to, to truck each day. So from Miami to Jacksonville via rail, it's manageable because you can create trains and you can be several, you know, long in order to get them up there. And the tracks are really not having to be start and stop because of traffic. But imagine if the system didn't occur and now you had to have an extra thousand trucks a day, semis on 95, on the Dolphin, on 595, 75, all trying to handle this freight that was being handled by the train. It would be a catastrophic nightmare. Uh, for those of us that already feel that Miami traffic's among the worst in the nation, and it is, it would, it would it'd just totally cripple us. You, know, it, you wouldn't be able to even get to work short of three or four hours of transportation. So um, this was a very, very um, positive step. Now, during this particular time, one of the larger uh, rail yards in Miami was not being used. This was the uh, Buena Vista rail yard. It's approximately 56 acres, and it was the largest vacant, you know, plot of ground in downtown Miami. And it was, you know, similar situated along North Miami Avenue between Northwest uh, 36th and Northwest 29th. And uh, historically, it was an, always an integral part of the, uh, you know, the freight operations. But in, in recent years, they had offloaded that to Hylia and other hubs, and uh, were using really uh, Buena Vista just in a small part that they were allowing the uh, the Port of Miami to have container space for. So seeing that this needed to be changed and up and graded, the, the, the city of Miami created a task force in January of 2000. And they decided to comprise this task force of government officials, business leaders, nonprofits, and, and real estate communities. And the task they were assigned to do was, what should we do with the, the Florida East Corridor? And what they mean by that is that that large area of tracks coming in, you know, to that rail yard and the rail yard itself, how should we redevelop that? What, what should become of that? Now, I'm bringing this up because as we're saying, can I rezone my property? This is the first step whenever you're approaching your, your planning department is to come with a study or a look at what actually is happening in the community you're thinking about redeveloping. And this was exactly the step that they had took. Later, they hired uh, Florida International University, or FIU, to head up a team of urban planners, architects, and engineers, GIS experts, and they, their task was coming up with what, what would be a creative plan or a way to go ahead and, and manage this particular situation. And at the end of 2001, they came up with a strategic, uh, or what, what was named as the... Uh, uh, the F FEC uh, corridor strategic redevelopment plan, and, and the output of this was that the principles were that it needed to be a an area that was diverse and sustainable with economy, and its own little area that it could become itself. Some people had even used the term a city in a city. It also had to have a vision of urban scale, and what that means is you know different. It doesn't have to all be high buildings. Some can be middle. Some can be mixed. Uh, a redevelopment that was really popular at this particular time across all cities in the uh, USA was to have mixed use where you might have a little commercial or retail on the ground floor, but yet still have the ability to have condominiums and or uh, varying different um, 
um, living spaces above that area. So this was a huge thing that they wanted in the study. The other was to create a broad spectrum of housing choices. They wanted to see, you know, uh, single family homes or they wanted to see uh, condominiums. They wanted to see uh, studios. They wanted to see lofts. They wanted to see an area where people could commute because one of the major you know, advantages of being in the corridor that the study brought up was easy access to downtown. You know, this was an area where people were tired of commuting. They wanted easy access to work every day. And the study uh, promoted that, that improving this particular area would provide that. It was also an, an area of known districts. Uh, there was a presence that they wanted this to become a part of. You know, they had the design district that was you know, coming up. They had the fashion district. They had the arts and entertainment districts that were in Wynwood and the areas around this particular community that they wanted it to fit into so that it would become a destination like they had become. There's also a significant inventory of like industrial or warehouse properties there. So um, the other great availability was uh, Biscayne Bay and the approximity to Miami Beach. So you had the ability to, to have, um, you know, access to the recreational areas of, of the area for residents. And that was a big thing. So the Florida Railroad, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall after, you know, the study came out in 2001 and began looking for offers that of people who might want to invest in the 56 acres and, and, and buy it. Um, they were courted by eight or nine, I think maybe perhaps as much as 10 um, options to buy the property. And one was finally selected in uh, December of uh, 2002, and they decided to sell the rail yard to Biscayne Development Partners, LLC, for uh, the sales price of $34.5 million. Now, aware of the study, Biscayne Development Partners immediately petitioned the city of Miami to assist in changing the existing land use and zoning to more favorable you know, use and zoning that could help promote the development that they planned to use the property for. Now, to give you kind of an idea of what it was zoned for prior to that, it was mainly restricted commercial. There was um, a little bit of liberal. They had some central business district and, um, you know, uh, what was determined to be uh, industrial or government areas. You know, they have industrial alone as well as office and, and there were some parks, uh, but mainly railroad as, as it came into the corridor. So uh, the city agreed to, to assist. They, they wanted the property developed as well. So they went ahead and hired FIU again to create... Um, what was um, the finding necessity for redevelopment study uh, for the uh, Buena Vista Yards area. Now, one of the next steps that happens before you can get you know, zoning approved to be rezoned is to take the time to um, do a study to see what impacts would be done for you know, your, your request. Does it need to be done? This particular step was to determine you know, that uh, these zonings were changed were needed and that redevelopment itself was doing so so FIU went, went in to see and, and the really the, the key words that are used that they needed to determine was was the 56 areas determined to be in its existing a, a slum area or a blighted area based on Florida code so Florida state was or Florida uh, uh, has the, the state law uh, determines a, a slum area as to be defined to be having uh, uh, physical or economic conditions conducive to disease infant mortality, juvenile delinquency, poverty, um, crime, because there is predominance of buildings or improvements, uh, whether residential or non, which, which need are, are impaired and dilapidated, 
deteriorated, aged, obsolescent, or uh, exhibiting one or more of the following. You know, the main thing was uh, that they needed, uh, they had uh, much need of repair needed to be happening. There was an impact uh, to the provisions for lights and in, 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 and uh, use of the area. But one of the main things that was there is that the, uh, the existing conditions were endangering life, property, fire, and other cases. Now, C was what was one of the stronger ones in this case because you have a, an abandoned railroad yard. Well, there's a lot of things that can hurt people in a railroad yard. You know, it used to be, you know, there for equipment. There were things that were abandoned and left. Uh, it's just an open area with fencing. You know, you could trip and fall on the rails. Uh, just that, that was kind of one of the things that were brought up. But the next... Um, was uh, what was determined a blighted area. And this was an area that means that there is a substantial number of deteriorations, older structures, conduct, you know, what, what is the condition. And then they had, um, they have a situation of, uh, it's kind of a multiple choice, but as, as long as three of the government maintained statistics or studies uh, showed that the economic distress or endangerment life uh, were needed just to, to determine a blighted area, you just needed to have uh, two or more of the following. So, of course, they had the FIU study going for them. And now that they were looking at was, you know, was, was there an impact to the, the taxes in the area? Was the, 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 uh, the property not bringing in the income it should for the area that it was in? Did it have uh, defects in the, the city layout and the parking facilities and railroad and railways and all the issues related to it? Was it showing any deterioration? Was it showing, you know, vacancy, high rates of vacancy, which, of course, this property was? Did it, was it considered by uh, fire and emergency officials as, you know, an issue of uh, providing service, especially if it took a little higher time to get there? And, and uh, the government-owned properties that, that were adversely uh, affected or, or environment by public and uh, private entity. So um, FIU came back long and short and said, yes, it, it was found to be needing to be revolved. And, and it went ahead and, and made the suggestions from that uh, that were adopted and or looked at by the city itself and said, okay, so we have somebody who wants development. They are asking us to rezone it. So they presented the plans of their thoughts on it. And what came out of that and what was provided from the zoning, they went to the, uh, the hearing board and uh, said, hey, uh, we would like to go ahead and create what is now known as Special District 27 for the Buena Vista Yards. Now, after several hearings uh, and after presentations and, and showing you know, what the developers had wanted to do um, in, in great detail and or taking into account the, uh, the two uh, FIU reports, uh, not only the vision of what the city wanted, but um, what the um, the uh, actual area was requiring to be to, to fall out back into a good developable area. Uh, everyone agreed. And the intent of the district that was brought out was, you know, to pretty much uh, create a Miami Midtown environment that was intensely urban with mixed use uh, and development that allowed 24-hour uh, activity. And the reason it would do that is because it would have its own retail, its own com you know, commercial. It would have um, walkable streets. It would have you know, controlled uh, areas that were safe and you know, wonderful open areas that could be used. And the second was you know, to enhance that by having you know, a pedestrian environment with connectivity to existing surrounding areas and extending the city grid. They wanted to do this by you know, 
where the the old railroad was you know putting in new streets that, that made it easier access you know a little wider you know kind of so that they could actually go from Wynwood up into this area or on into uh, connectivity to um, uh, 95 or they could go on to uh, the the Julia Tuttle that they could actually connect up with and or be taken across to Miami Beach just give that connectivity that was uh, lacking at the moment and they would provide it and they also wanted to be able to improve what was going to be used in there so they also wanted to limit you know review for any major construction in there so they created a new class of special permit called class 2 and it required um you know, prior approval before any permits could be pulled. And this was, you know, just basically to per, for the planning department to determine, you know, especially major uses and in, in, in what have you of any, you know, particular structures and what have you. So the idea was to allow, you know, a neighborhood convenience of, of goods and services, including, you know, food stores, you know, allowing grocery stores, and, uh, bringing in any kinds of foods, ice creams, confectionaries. They, they wanted to, to really open the space up for the general publics by, um, allowing um, big box retail. One of the big weaknesses that Miami and Miami Beach had was there wasn't that much uh, big box retail. You couldn't like go to a Home Depot. They, they really didn't have it. It was very in far out reaching areas. So um, uh, it wasn't in, until about this time that there was the opportunity to actually go to a Best Buy without having to drive miles and miles and miles. So having big box in this opened up the opportunity for the citizens to, that were living there to literally walk up to the building and get it. So they, they brought in a Publix, which is a grocery store here in South Florida. They brought in uh, Best Buy, and it just greatly improved the livability of the area, not only for Midtown Miami, but for those communities that were nearby. They wanted florists and tobacco shops, just, just enjoyable areas that could be done. And they also wanted to improve the ability um, to follow um, you know services. They wanted to bring in banks. They wanted to bring in uh, financial institutions. They wanted to bring in, you know, realtors, locksmiths, people that would provide the services that this little community would need in order to live well. And they also wanted to bring in hotels, which was one of the phased projects. You know, they wanted uh, mixed uh, types of, of residencies as well. They wanted to have like a uh, uh, studios that I mentioned. They wanted to bring in lofts. They wanted to bring in um, uh, that mixed use feel of being able to have some shops underneath and then uh, walk up and, and stay or take the elevator up uh, to it and they wanted to have um, a mixed sizing of buildings the, one of the initial ones was like eight stories and as what was there and it, it provided quite a bit of, of um, life if you would that was so missing from that part of Miami and uh, that was the reason and a great success of this so um, one of the things in kind of closing that I had wanted to do is kind of just give you the example of the, the steps that it would take to go ahead and, and do the zoning. One, as we kind of did historically, determine areas that are in need of repair for whatever reason that may be. In the case of the railroad, it was due to the fact they weren't using it as much anymore. They had, you know, they were using it more for land and the, uh, uh, the hoping of it to uh, improve and appraise. What the, uh, the city itself took the proaction to see that it needed to be redeveloped. So it made it part of the city plan. They actually asked and evaluated. Nothing was done quickly, though. That's one of the things I want to kind of go. Anytime you can zone up your property and, and provide better and greater use for it, expect that the, the planning department's going to take a little time to make up its mind. So when you start the process, it's not going to be, you know, a weekend. It's not going to be like normally when you get a permit for an existing construction. When you're trying to do something on this scale, realize they may take a little bit more time. They may ask you to do a little bit more. Now, we'll kind of highlight that if we can in the next episodes.
so that you can kind of know the steps exactly down to what you would need to go and when you'd need to apply and all that. But I just wanted to give you a successful example in Midtown Miami of where a historical, you know, railroad, large area for development, was um, seen, evaluated, and in the period of really about five to now it's almost 20 years, completely revitalized that entire area of the city of Miami and made it just a surging and, and, and really uh, a great investment, not only for the city, but for the investors themselves as they came across and did that. Now, from a city standpoint, remember, when you have a railroad yard, there's nobody to tax except for the land. But when you have a vibrant community of, of uh, people living in condominiums, their tax base goes up. So when the, the city's tax base goes up, of course, that helps not only that community because they can provide better services, they can provide better fire and police support, they can provide you know parks, they can ensure that the roads are maintained. All these things are how cities evolve, and, and so this whole uh, wrap-up was, was a win-win for all sides. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is William Tharp saying uh, goodbye, and we'll look forward to speaking to you on Episode 10. Thanks. Thanks.